Well, good evening. Thank you for coming to be with us tonight. And if you're visiting, I want to extend an especially warm welcome to you. Tonight we come to the second part of our short series that we are trying to do through the first half of Ephesians chapter 4 under the heading of How a Good Church Functions. There's lots of ideas about what that should look like, but what we're especially keen to get to is what the Bible tells us. In the 1970s, in the Netherlands, a school of thought emerged that seemed to be revolutionary, something that seemed a guaranteed route to success, something for everyone else to aspire to. It went by the title Total Football. Basic idea was that rather than have players in your team who were just specialized in one position, that you trained each member of the team, except for the goalie, who'll never be any good, to be able to change places with any other member of the team so your left back could fill in for your center forward. It was an impressive, idealistic, and for some, a very successful approach. That's not the model for church. That's not the model for how a church functions. It's not even what a church should aspire to be. In 1905, in the, in the city of Pittsburgh, Harry and John Harris started their own revolution. They put 96 seats into a disused shop and charged people to come and watch short films. The first cinema was opened. A large group of people sitting together, passively watching what the hard work of directors and actors and some cinema staff behind the scenes had produced for their entertainment. And from there, the cinema took off, proliferated all over the world. It was a good model for attracting, for entertaining, and for making money. And even though it is commonly implemented in churches, it is not the model of how church functions. What does make for a good model of church? That's our concern in this short series. And we're going to read again those verses in Ephesians 4, and then we're going to have another reading where we're going to base our thoughts in tonight. So let's, just to keep it familiar in our minds, let's read the first 16 verses of Ephesians chapter 4 together. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. This is the word of God. Now, we saw last time that a good church functions, first of all, by recognizing God-given leadership. And specifically, in this chapter, the Apostle Paul is concerned about leadership that teaches. He specifically mentions in verse 11 those who were commissioned to, to handle the Word of God. And we spent a bit of time thinking about what he means by shepherds and teachers. But one of the great dangers is that we allow ourselves to forget that the presence of shepherds and teachers in the church is not an end in itself. I mean, if that was all we were concerned about, we could have that cinematic model where we put on a good show. There is something entertaining to come and to see or to hear, but it will actually miss the point of what church is all about. And that's evident in this passage in where the focus of the work of pastors and teachers is. It is with the members of the church. If you look at this in verse 12, why does, why does the Lord give these gifted individuals to the church? Verse 12, to equip the saints. And the saints is just another word for Christians. To equip believers for the work of ministry. You see, it is as the members of the church engage in the work of ministry that the body of Christ is built up. That's the model for church. That's the model for church growth. And so we move from considering a church's leadership to its members. And the essential principle that we're going to draw from Ephesians 4 this week is that every member is uniquely gifted. I mean, this is the point that Paul makes in verse 7. And it's interesting how he does this, because in the preceding verses, his overwhelming emphasis has been on Christian unity, particularly verses 4, 5, and 6 of this chapter. He outlines what are the core doctrines that every Christian shares in common. And so you see there that there's one body, one spirit, you were called in one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And I suppose when you come to that point, you could, you could ask the question, well, does that mean that Christians are just a bunch of clones? Someone becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, and suddenly, well, because they all hold to the same thing, that they just become identical to one another. Well, that couldn't be further from the truth. And Paul follows up with verse 7, which is really where the principle we're looking at is focused on in this passage. Verse 7, he says, But... Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He tells us that this doctrinal unity that we have as believers in Christ is also the ground for the encouraging reality that there is a God-given diversity in the church. 
And it's something that Jesus Christ himself has designed. These are, these are Christ's gifts that he gives to each one of us. This is part of the Lord's victorious giving of gifts to the church, giving his grace to each one according to the measure of his gift. Now, in order to kind of flesh this point out, we're going to go to another passage of the New Testament and just see another place where Paul kind of dwells on this subject a little bit more. And you'll find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So we're going to read from 1 Corinthians 12, and we're going to read verses 1 to 11. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers... I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. You see, the Corinthian church had got itself in a bit of a mess. When Paul opens, as he does this chapter, with a phrase like, now concerning, he's tapping into one of the problem points in the Corinthian church. So you find back in chapter 7 he starts this. And you can go back and read all of the times he, he, he starts a new subject by saying, now concerning. And there was a problem in the church with spiritual gifts. And as you read chapters 12, 13, and 14, you find that even though this church they lacked no spiritual gift. They were a gifted bunch, but they were missing the point. They were forgetting why spiritual gifts were given. They'd managed to turn them into a source of division in the church. And so some were boasting about their gifts, and at the same time looking down on others who they thought were much less gifted. And that led to some then becoming envious about other people's gifts, and you can imagine these attitudes were not a recipe for harmonious Christian living. So what I want to do is I want to note just some of the key points that Paul gets across in this principle of the unique gifting of every member of the church. The first one is to say that Christian diversity is rooted in unity. I'm coming back to that point again. That's the pattern we saw in Ephesians 4. And you'll have noticed, hopefully, that there's a, a Trinitarian structure here. So you see this in verse 4, where he says that there are varieties of gifts, varieties of service, varieties of activities. But that variety is rooted in some essential unities 
What are they? The same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God who empowers them all in everyone. This brings precious perspective. That whatever folks' gifts, we are never to regard each other as rivals. Christians should never have a a rivalry when they compare one gift with another. Because this passage is crying out to us. We are essentially all on the same team. If we're talking about spiritual gifts, we are on the same team. That diversity is here described in terms of different strengths and weaknesses. And if you turn over uh, or just come down that chapter to verse 27, you see that uh, Paul goes into listing some specific gifts again. Verse 27 of chapter 12, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. The obvious answer to those rhetorical questions that he asks there is no, 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 no. Not everybody is gifted in the same way. And he's showing us that this uh, though we have the same Lord, there is this God-given diversity. And this isn't supposed to be an exhaustive list, I think is another uh, important thing to remember. In, it's intended to show that the, the, just the diversity that exists in the church, an undeniable diversity, the different functioning parts of the one body of Christ. And so there's, there's often so much fuss and so much division about the so-called charismatic gifts. Though strictly speaking, there is not a spiritual gift that is not charismatic. All the gifts are graciously given to the church. And that includes in verse 28. I don't know if you noticed, very easy to overlook those much less lauded, but every bit as essential, those gifts of administrating, of, of helping, and what you also find is there are, there are other lists of gifts, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4. And what some people have tried to do is gather together those passages and compile a definitive list of the spiritual gifts. But I must say, I think that is to utterly, utterly miss the point. The most important thing is not about being able to put a label on spiritual gifting. It's about doing what you can to serve the body of Christ. When every member of the church does that, then, as we read in Ephesians 4, each part is working properly, and the body grows and builds itself up. And so we see Christian diversity is rooted in unity. The second thing I want to point out is that spiritual gifts are gifts. Spiritual gifts are gifts. And so this, uh, this verse that we're pointing out in Ephesians chapter 4, we read there that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And isn't that the same language that Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians 12? Verse 4 tells us there are varieties of gifts. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Verse 8, to one is given. And then he goes on, to another, to another, to another is given. 
You see, nowhere is there even a hint that someone chose which gift they would have. Neither is there a hint that someone would somehow earn a particular gift. It's not the case that because someone has done X number of years of service that they then get promoted to this gift. There's not a hint of that here. And that's so important for us and something that is tragically very easily lost in Christian service. The inevitable point here is that there is no room for pride. There is no room for boasting in our gifts. And of all people, Christians should be those who most readily demonstrate a humility. Because because we have come to see that unless God intervened in my life, I would never have been rescued from my sins. And that same sort of appreciation of grace needs to continue in the Christian life. Because we find that from start to finish, salvation is a work of grace. It's a gift. And so whatever it is that God has given you to offer for his service, Whatever he's given you to use to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ, then it's because he gave it to you. You see, you didn't earn it. It wasn't your ingenuity to give yourself this great resource to use. God entrusted it to you. And here's this other unavoidable implication. Not only can we not boast in our gifts, They're gifts in the sense that they're not ours to do with as we please. If we didn't design the reception of this gift, then we need to look to the one who says, I have given you this. And we need to say, Lord, what would you have me do with it? There's a certain stewardship that's required when God entrusts something to you. And that leads into the third thing that I want to point out. And that is that gifts are given to be used. Gifts are given to be used. You see this explicitly in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 12. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Again, you go back to Ephesians 4. The whole point is that the body builds itself up in love as each individual uses the gifts they've been given. If you were to read 1 Peter chapter 4, he puts it like this. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. There's that theme again. You want to be a good steward of the gifts that God has given to you? Then use them to serve others. And you see, there's, there's really no opt-out for any of us here, is there? I mean, if we're people who claim to take the Bible seriously, then this claim that every Christian is uniquely gifted by God means that it is not an option for any believer to settle for sitting on the sidelines, effectively ignoring the fact that they belong to the body of Christ and therefore they have the privilege of being gifted by Christ for service. We don't have the option to ignore that. And we can only realize that gift that God has given when we engage in the service that he gave it to us to use it for. In much of 
evangelicalism, we have made a mess of this. Because for many, the church has become a product that we consume. I mean, I just try and think how many people in any given year come along to church to find out if it suits their tastes and it meets their needs. Now, on one level, that's an important thing to do, right? You want to be sure that a church is preaching the word, that it holds to the gospel. A church's convictions is a very important thing to have a grasp of. But too often, I find the chief concerns of folks is not about those things. Rarely are people asking the question, is this a place I could serve? Most often, it's focused on style of music, or rating the preacher out of ten. You see, when we commit to be part of a local church, we're committing to to a local expression of the body of Christ. We're committing ourselves to our fellow believers who are part of that church. We're committing to throw into the pot whatever God has given to us in order to help that body grow. That is a much bigger thing than a commitment to a preacher or to a style of worship. So we see that Christian diversity is rooted in unity. Spiritual gifts are gifts. Gifts are given to be used. And one more thing to point out before we consider some applications is that no one has everything. No one has everything. Look at verse 11 of our passage here. Paul says, all these, okay, all of these varieties of giftings are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Again, look at verse 7 of Ephesians 4 behind me. Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, of course, again, the point is we don't decide. We don't choose who gets what gift. We don't get to determine the things we're good at and the things we are useless at. It's the Lord Jesus who gets to make those determinations. He gives gifts to men through his Spirit. What a glorious privilege it is to belong to the body of Christ. But one thing I hadn't really thought of before is that what's being made here is in some ways a negative point. Each one receives a measure To each one, there is a portion given. That is to say, no one has it all. No one. No one will ever be spiritually self-sufficient. Because at best, even the most gifted person you can think of only has a measure. And so, there is no individual that in and of himself or herself, carries all the giftings that would be necessary for a local body of believers to function well. And that's why any model of church government that is really just one guy doing everything is utterly misguided. Because the church needs to be marked out by every member ministry. That's the Lord's design. But more than that, that needs to be out. we need to recognize that that's what we need. We need more than the ministry of just one person. More than just your contribution. We need every member to be doing what God has commissioned them to do. 
And that's why the total football model doesn't work for church. No one has it all. So having laid out those principles, I want to spend some time just thinking about some applications for us as a church. First of all, I want to ask you if you have the first clue about what I'm talking about. That's always a dangerous question to ask an audience, I suppose. There are many in churches who are enthusiastically engaged in doing some work around the church. I know lots of people who are uh, who give all of their spare time to helping their local church to make ends meet. Helping out where they can, but they don't have a relationship with Christ. And anyone in that situation, quite simply, has not been gifted by Christ to serve in the church. You see, you don't receive some, uh, this, this, this gifting for service until you've received the greatest gift first. The gift of salvation. Jesus gave gifts to the church by giving his Holy Spirit. After he had ascended into heaven, after his death on the cross in the place of sinners, after that victorious resurrection we've been remembering today, he saves us. He makes us right with God. He indwells us by his Spirit. But only when we come to Christ in faith and repentance. You need to be sure that you've done that. No amount of service in the local church will make up for not having Christ. Second of all, and perhaps the most asked question in this area of church life, is how do I know what my gift is? And I must say, I'm increasingly convinced that in the main, that's to ask the wrong question. Because it has the very real potential of giving someone a nice label, I have the gift of, but not actually making them of much use in the church. I've shared this example with you before. uh, The example of a music teacher who was a member of her local church. The pianist had failed to turn up and they were desperate. So the pastor goes down and he asks the music teacher, can you help us? Can you step in at the last minute and play? She said she would need to think about it. And after a few minutes, she said no. She wouldn't be able to help because she had a different gift and that it therefore wouldn't be appropriate for her to do the music. Now, I know that that is an unusual case of lunacy, but that way of thinking does prevail when we become more concerned about being labeled with a gift than being useful in the church. And so a common way of people identifying their gifts is to fill out a questionnaire. But that on its own can leave you with a label and not being of very much use. So one piece of advice I would give in identifying your gift is to find out what needs doing. What needs to be done? And honestly ask yourself, could I do this? Could I help in some way to make this happen? Do I have a desire to help in that way? Do I have some ability to help in that way? This isn't the entirety of the story. I have more to say, but this is a starting point for most of us. 
Rather than being caught up and needing to have a neatly boxed in label, how about this week you find a way to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ? Maybe you become aware of a need. That may be someone in need of encouragement. That may be someone in need of practical assistance. That may be someone in need of prayer. And look to do what you can. Can you come alongside them and encourage them? Can you take time out of your day to pray for them? Could that be a ministry that you develop? There are those things that, of course, are also more formalized, like a church rota, which is struggling. Rather than looking on and saying, they're there, I really do miss supper after the evening service, but (laughs) hey-ho, well, what could you do? Or think of some of the rotas that we are struggling to fill. We're crying out for people to chair services. There's always need in music. Crash is struggling to fill its rota just now. And there's those things through the week as well where there seems to be less people available, but maybe in toddlers could use some help. And the list goes on. Maybe that's the starting point for you to ask, where can I be? Of some help. If you recall where we started in this short series on how a good church functions, we saw that it started with God given leadership. Because those leaders are to equip the members of the church for service. That's the pattern in Ephesians 4. And there's a danger that we could easily take this language that we've seen again and again of gift. And think that simply to have a particular gift is to therefore be fully equipped. But in reality, we all know that that's not how it works. And if we slip into that way of thinking, we will place very little importance on the place of training people for service. And I think miss the very point of the equipping that's mentioned in Ephesians 4. There's supposed to be an investment in the members of the church so that they be better equipped to serve. I think of Paul's words to Timothy when he encouraged his son in the faith to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. You'd find that in 2 Timothy 1 verse 6. Now, whatever Paul specifically meant, he surely had in mind that whatever measure of gifting Timothy had, he had a responsibility to grow in that, to become better at discharging it, to do it as fully as he could. Now, this this is a commitment that Paul had personally made to Timothy. Do you think Timothy was a better teacher of the Word of God after traveling with Paul for many years? Or do you think it didn't make much difference? Of course he was better. Paul had recognized his gift and had invested in him. He grew in his ability as a teacher. And that principle applies to all of us. This is one of the inevitable duties that falls on on any of us that have some sort of responsibility for some area of ministry in the life of the church. So let me ask you, are you responsible for a particular area of service in the church? Then the follow-up question is, Who are you letting shadow you in that work? 
Who are you taking alongside you and saying, this is how we do this? This is how we do this. And just think of of, of how many areas of church life this applies to. It applies to every area of church life. Who are you passing on your expertise to so that someone else may grow in discharging their gifts and abilities to serve in that way? I mean, this applies to the most basic things, all the way to those who should aspire to be elders in the church, to those who are called into full-time ministry. You see, elders and full-time church workers don't just grow on trees. They don't just magically appear one day because we give them a special label. Like all of us, they need to be invested in. They need to be shown what it means to fulfill those roles. Last of all, the the place of, of leadership in the church... It's very important in this because also sometimes we're not very good at discerning our own abilities or discerning our own limitations. And this is where it can become so valuable for the members of a church to submit to their leaders and to involve our church leaders in trying to discern where our gifts lie. Just because I feel drawn to do something does not mean I'm equipped to do it. And so my challenge to all of us here tonight is to give your leaders the best kind of headache. By stepping forward and asking them, where can I serve in the church? Speaking as an elder of the church, that's the sort of headache we love to have. Where can I be of service in the church how can I minister to my brothers and sisters in this church to recognize that whatever God has given you in terms of abilities in terms of resources he's done that so that you might use them for the common good and that may be in the quiet way that you're currently doing and praise God for that keep on going That may be in the public way that you're already doing. And praise God for that. Keep on going. Our unity in the gospel comes forth when the diversity of the members of the body of Christ are working together. That's what makes a good church function. Next time we're going to look at some other aspects of what it means to belong to the body of Christ, in particular our interdependence as members of the body and the needed attitude of heart for the church to function. But here tonight we've seen this principle. Every member uniquely gifted by Christ, every member needed for the church to grow and function. So let every one of us seek by God's grace, to play our part in that. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word, and we want to thank you for the privilege that it is to belong to the body of Christ. We would have reason enough to worship you for all eternity if all you had done was to forgive us our sins. But yet you've brought us into this most privileged place of being united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that you would 
you would help us to, to have a heart that longs to see the body of Christ functioning as it should. And to see that each one of us has a role to play in that. So Father, we want to thank you for the diversity of people that belong to this church. A diversity of backgrounds, but also a diversity of gifting. And we pray, Father, you would help us to recognize where people's gifts lie. And that you would help us to appropriately invest in them. That they might grow in their abilities to use those gifts that you've given. That you would help us to be preparing for the next generation of those in the church. Regardless of what area of service that might be in this local church, whether that might be in equipping new elders, people for for full-time ministry, Father, help us to see what you have placed in your people and help us to be a support and encouragement to them that they might fan into flame the gift that you've given. Confident, Father, that this This is the pattern that you've given us for how the body of Christ should function and that this is what you bless. So we pray, Father, for wisdom, for readiness to serve and for a dependence upon your grace in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.